0: You're listening to a sermon podcast from Paramount Church in Columbus, Ohio. To learn more, visit ParamountColumbus.com. Amen. If you have your copy of God's Word, let me encourage you to turn with me to our text for this morning, which is in the book of Amos, and it's Amos chapter 8. No verses there, the entire chapter of Amos chapter 8, just 14 verses. That's where we will be this morning. As you can see at the front of the sanctuary is a table that has the elements for our celebration of the Lord's Supper, which customarily we do on the last Sunday of every month. And there is no better way for us to prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper than remembering what the redeeming work of Jesus has accomplished for us. But this morning as we look at Amos chapter 8, We are going to remember that in a unique way. We're actually going to remember what Jesus has done for us by looking at it in the reverse, or as I have titled the sermon this morning, Gospel Blessings in Reverse. So we're going to be able to see what was going on, furthermore, in the nation of Israel at this time. And by seeing the trouble, by seeing the loss that was brought about by their sin in the context of God's judgment, We want our hearts to be rejoiced by seeing what Christ has done for us. It's similar to the way that we might look back upon our lives and see or imagine where would I have been without this influence or that, without this person or this opportunity that set me on a particular path. But this morning, as we think about this as Christians, we are looking to recognize what Christ has done for us by looking at where we would have been. Where we would have been without him. In Amos chapter 8, that's where we will focus our attention this morning. Here in Amos 8, we see again another vision that God has given to the prophet Amos as he describes the situation and yet again, uh, with patience, gives opportunity for his people to repent of their sin. But we're reminded yet again of how bad things have gotten. In fact, what we're going to see in Amos chapter 8 is a passage that is maybe best categorized under this term, God forsaken. Just as the people of Israel had in so many ways forsaken God, what we have play out before us in this vision of, of coming ultimate judgment is what it looks like for God to forsake. Sometimes we throw that language around. That's language that we're all somewhat familiar with. If you think about maybe a place in the desert or if you got stranded on the side of the road on a trip with a broken down car, you might refer to either of those two places when you get home as the most God forsaken place in the world. We throw that language around flippantly, but it's not being thrown around flippantly this morning but it's quite serious because this is the real picture of what it looks like to be God forsaken. So as we look at this, we're going to notice three losses that are proclaimed in this vision. And by seeing them be able to rejoice because of three big benefits that have come to us in Christ. I want to remind you first by looking at verses four through six of exactly how bad the God-forsaken situation had become in their forsaking of God. You probably remember from recent weeks that a number of the ways that the people have been described throughout the book of Amos at this time, because of their their rampant, unrepentant sin, in particular because of the way that they were interacting with other people in the world, especially the weak and the helpless, the way that they were taking advantage of them and denying them justice in the city gate has described them as people who loved gain more than they loved God. In fact, because they loved gain so much, their connection to God or their claiming of his name as their covenant king was often just co-opted as a way to, to gain wealth and to increase their riches because they loved gain more than they loved God. Not only that, the the holy day, as we'll see this morning, was a duty and not a delight. Their gathering together as the people of God or their worship at the the place of sacrifice was not something that was delighting them. It was something they felt they, they had to do just to get through it so that we can check off what we were supposed to be about in our obedience And then we can get back to making gains in all of these areas of life. And then also we see that in their hearts and minds, what reigned supreme above their interest in glorifying their God, above their interest in blessing and ministering to the people around them was simply self-preservation. Because that was their ultimate concern. Their lives played out in an unending story of praying on the poor and the weak. Something that is abominable to the God of the universe. Listen to verses four through six as you hear it in God's words. Hear this, you who trample the needy to put an end to the humble of the land, saying, when will the new moon be over? When will this festival be over? So that we may sell grain and the Sabbath, the church day, so that we may open the wheat market to make the ephah smaller and the shekel bigger. This is where they're they're taking the economy and they're reversing it around or or perverting it to their own gain and to cheat with dishonest scales so as to buy the helpless for money. And the needy for a pair of sandals, and that we may sell the refuse of the wheat. Even that wheat that's left over on the ground, which we read in other passages of Scripture, was was to be left to be gleaned by the poor. Instead, what would they do? Is They would gather it up. This is the picture of their hearts, gathering that up so that they can sell even the refuse, even what's left over. This is a glimpse into what every person's heart is like, apart from Christ. Every person who is born in the world, myself included, yourselves included, we were born in sin in this way. It wasn't just that there was a little bit wrong with us. We were little sinners in need of a little savior, enormous sinners who'd come into the world forsaking God, came into the world with self-preservation on our minds, came into the world looking at how we could co-opt the systems of the world to gain for ourselves never to think of glorifying God, never to think of coming to him, forsaking him. Well, now as we've seen this continue to play out in the book of Amos, what we're going to see this morning is a sobering, sobering picture of what life would be like, what life is like, if God were to have forsaken us as well. We see three losses in the text this morning. Here's the first. It's the loss of life. We read this in Amos chapter eight. I think that we can picture both kinds of loss of life, both literal loss of life. That certainly is a consequence of the fall, is it not? That our bodies made by God to be in service to him because of the fall would, would wear down as we're all feeling it. Some of us feeling it more than others this morning. And eventually that our bodies would die. It's part of living under the curse of sin But also there is a kind of figurative or spiritual kind of loss of life that is envisioned here as a very serious consequence for sin. I want you to see this morning the desperate situation which their rampant sin had made. God had been forewarning them of coming judgment all through the pages, all through the words of Amos in an offer of patience, for repentance, and that there might even be release of the the envisioned judgment that was coming. But instead of heeding that word, they remained steadfast in their sin. And over time, their sin ripened. It ripened like like a piece of fruit on a vine or on a tree. And in fact, that's the image that God gives Amos here as we look at verse 1. Verse 1 is where this vision begins because we read those words again. This is what the Lord God, the sovereign God, showed me. And behold, Amos says, there was a basket of summer fruit. And he said, what do you see, Amos? And I said, a basket of summer fruit. Then the Lord said to me, the end has come for my people Israel. I will not spare them any longer. The songs of the palace will turn to wailing on that day, declares the Lord God. The corpses will be many, and in every place they will throw them out. Hush. What do you see, Amos? I see a basket of summer fruit. Typically, you and I know I do, love, love, ripened fruit. I remember when I was really young, I would go with my grandparents, Mama and Papa. They lived, if you can't guess it, in South Carolina. That's where all the Mama's and Papa's are. And Mama and Papa were faithful to take us there around Greenville, South Carolina to the strawberry field. And we would go pick strawberries and we would eat them right out of the field. And it was its just one of the best memories uh, of my childhood. We'd take them home and we'd take those those ripe strawberries. We would cut them up and put them into these um, little plastic dishes. Mama would put a little piece of foil over top and close it. She would put it in this giant freezer in the basement. It was stacked full of frozen strawberries. And every time I was at Mama's house, I would open that up. She had sprinkled them with sugar first and they kind of, you know what I'm talking about? They kind of get that syrup going down in there. And then you just eat them frozen right out of there. You got to pick away at them a little bit. And then once you start getting them out, there's nothing like that. It's like life-giving to eat those frozen, ripe strawberries. That's normally the way that we think of summer fruit. But that's not the way that God thinks of summer fruit in this text. He's saying something far different. He's not talking about something that's delightful and life-giving. He's talking about something that is grievous and death giving because what he's talking about is the fruit of their sin. It's the fruit of their sin that has ripened into this summer deadly fruit. And this is what he is showing is the cause of their ultimate coming judgment. It's the fruit of sin which kills rather than it being that sweet piece of fruit on the tree or on the vine or, or on the bush that you can pull off and, and eat and enjoy and go on. This is the kind of fruit that when you eat it, it kills you. It's like a, a mancan eel. Uh, that's a kind of a little apple that I read about as one of the most poisonous fruits in the world. It's in North America. It's also in South America. It goes by the name Manzanilla de la Muerte. That's Spanish for the little apple of death. When you take a bite of that little apple, it tastes sweet, it tastes wonderful. Soon after, you start to feel the, the peppered sensation on your throat as your throat begins to close in and burn under the, the white sap or juice that's coming out of that apple. And eventually it brings death. That summer fruit that ripens on the vine among these people is the fruit that brings judgment. You notice how serious it is by the way that God describes it in this vision. What does he say in verse 2 and 3? The end has come for my people Israel I will not spare them any longer. The time of God's patience, he says, is coming to an end. And when it does, the songs of the palace will turn to wailing on that day. Wailing, that's the image of, of, of uncontrollable grief and crying and moaning for your loss. The corpses will be many in every place They will throw them out. Corpses on corpses on corpses. And then you see the very last word of verse three in my translation says, hush. Yours might say silence. It's an emphatic description of the situation that there is silence. Silence because of death and silence because of grief. This frames for us what is just so bad and just so serious about sin. So easy for uh, my heart to take sin lightly, to dabble in it a little here, there, a little again. Who is it really hurting? But yet we see the picture here of just how serious sin is. Sin is an assassin. Sin is a killer. In fact, I think that's why James, in his book of the Bible in chapter one, personifies sin like a killer. But it's an interesting kind of killer. It's like that little apple of death that starts off appearing and tasting so sweet. And then once it grows up and ripens, it kills you. Listen to what he says when he talks about temptation and sin. He says, but each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust, he puts the responsibility for sin in the heart of every person. The context of this little bit of James is where he's, he's warning that, that no one should ever, when they're feeling tempted, blame God as though God is tempting them, but rather he shows the source of temptation, which is the source of sin in their own hearts. Each one is tempted when he's carried away And enticed by his own lust, by his own, another way to put that word, ruling desire. And then he says, then when lust has conceived, he's using procreation language. He's talking about the image of a baby being conceived in the womb. When lust has conceived, it grows up and ripens and then it gives birth to sin And sin, when it has run its course, brings forth death. Whose death does it bring forth? Yours. Mine. It's our little pet. It's our little baby of sin. It's our little piece of fruit. And when it ripens, it goes unchecked. Without repentance, without forgiveness, forsaking God, it grows up and it kills us. Notice the ripeness of sin for these people at this time in verses four through six yet again. Notice the way that their sin had ripened and the kinds of lives that they were living. Only consumed, uh, concerned with the time that they could sell their grain. The Sabbath day was only a means to which they could once again open the wheat market so that they could adjust the scales and, and cheat those who came to the market so that they could gain for themselves with their dishonest scales so that they could buy the helpless for money and the needy for a pair of sandals and then sell what was left over to make even more. Friends, this is a picture of the default mode of the human heart. This is what this world is about apart from Jesus Christ. Without the the restraining influence of God's grace on the world, this is what the world becomes. When God forsakes people and they spin out of control when the, the barriers are brought down of God's restraining grace, this is the way they live more and more and more. When you read this, you might sadly think about much of what we see and have seen of recent days, even in the American church, even in our own nation. This is the way we operate. Think again about their great sin against the weak. This is highlighted over and over again in the book of Amos this is even something that's come up so much in our, in our culture, and our world lately, as these important issues have been brought to the surface by different events, is that no longer can we simply think about our, our Christianity in relation just to the vertical with God, but we must think, as we, as we know we should, horizontally, that they go together. Christianity is not merely vertical, it's horizontal which calls us to consider what our, what our disposition toward other people is. What is our disposition toward people who are weak, who are in need, who are oppressed, who are enslaved, who are struggling, who are hungry? What is our disposition toward them? The picture that we're getting here of these people and sometimes the way that you and I even live and think is completely illogical. It makes no sense because we, we love the idea of mercy when God is showing it to us. But oftentimes, we then begrudge mercy when we're called to give it to others. As if we would find any excuse not to offer it when we're commanded, commanded to extend grace and mercy. We prefer debate We prefer defense. We prefer argumentation. When God is calling us to prefer mercy. I think there's a call in this text to all Christians, especially those who are living in places like us, for most of us, not all of us, places of ease, places of relative wealth, to consider our hearts toward the weak, toward the poor, toward the struggling. How do we as Christians actually see the virtue of sacrifice and kindness and mercy toward others? Because the ultimate question for us is how can we make the mercy of our God look so very good? How can we put on display the wonderful grace and mercy that God has shown to us? We thought about that a little bit more this morning as we were singing and as we were praying together to think about the the way that God has so warmly welcomed us into his kingdom. Sinners, He has welcomed us, people who fit into these verses that we've read this morning, who are like this in our default mode. And yet he has welcomed us. He has chosen to rejoice over us because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. Therefore, the first loss that we see in this text this morning is the loss of life. But we're reminded as we come to this table in just a few moments that it was Christ himself who gave us life. While we were dead in our sins and trespasses, he came and gave us life. And he didn't just give us any life. He did not give us our life back. What did he give us? He gave us his own life by sacrificing his life for us. Loss of life. The second loss though that we see this morning in verses seven through 10 is the loss of what we tend to call happiness. Notice the loss of happiness that comes along with this loss of life, in particular, spiritual life. We see again here in this book, as we see in many pages of scripture in our own experience in life, that God is not all that makes happy. You do not have to know God to feel happy. Because our hearts are made to be happy. We're on a quest to be happy. It's hardwired into us to be happy. And therefore, we're always searching for it. And when we find it, when we find that lust, that ruling desire, that objective or goal, that person, well, suddenly our hearts are put at ease and we are made happy. So we can find happiness in many places. In fulfillment of our dreams and our desires. In fact, the biggest worldly happiness is one that we see right here in the text. And it is pride. (coughs) Nothing makes me more happy on many days than my own pride. It's a crazy thought for me to think as a Christian... As someone who, who loves God because he's loved me, I, I love God's word, I, I I want to love God, I want to be glad in God, but there's this part of me that keeps pulling me somewhere else, looking for my happiness or gladness or joy or satisfaction somewhere else. It's insanity, but it is real. And my pride often is my biggest happy maker. It makes me feel fulfilled. It makes me feel happy as it did for these folks at this time. But God's judgment because of that would turn their happiness and rejoicing into mourning. Listen to these words from verses 7 through 10. The covenant God has sworn by the pride of Jacob. Indeed, I will never forget any of their deeds because of this will the land not quake and everyone who lives in it mourn indeed all of it will rise up like the Nile and it will be tossed about and subside like the Nile of Egypt and it will come about on that day declares the Lord God that I will make the sun go down at noon and make the earth dark in broad daylight then I will turn your festivals into mourning and all your songs into songs of mourning. I'll put sackcloth around everyone's waist and baldness on every head and I will make it like a time of mourning for an only son. And the end of it will be like a bitter day. The happiness of pride would fail under the heat of God's judgment. Did you catch those words? Always pay attention to the words. They are intentionally placed. Quake, mourn, darkness, festivals to mourning, corporate mourning in sackcloth, the worst kind of mourning, the mourning for an only son. This is a, a comprehensive picture of taking away all of the joys of life. That is what God's judgment ultimately brings about. And again, he does so because he has hardwired us for happiness. We are a lot like a computer program that's hardwired to accomplish a certain purpose. And yet in comes this virus and co-ops that program. It takes over It takes over the hard wiring and begins using it for evil purposes. It's the very same thing that happens because of sin in our own hearts, in my heart. Though I am made to seek my happiness, my gladness in God, which is my ultimate holiness, it's my ultimate hope and satisfaction, yet the virus of sin, the virus of sin has pulled me away and has directed my attention to other things. That's why this is so important and striking It's so important to see this in this text because we know that we are made for happiness. I want you to think about your life for a moment. Everything that you do is driven by your desire for happiness. Everything that you do, every moment of every day, that's what your quest is, as is mine, and rightly so, because when we belong to Christ and when we pursue Him, Our desire for happiness and gladness drives us to him. It drives us to serve him. It drives us to lose our lives for him. It drives us to give our lives away for other people. When our happiness is threatened, when our quest is upended, what do we do? We revolt. This scene that's playing out in these verses is all about misplaced happiness. This is a theme you heard this morning in our public reading of Scripture from Psalm 1, and we're going to look at it briefly again. This is a theme that you see play out over and over again. It is the contrast between the godly and the ungodly, or what the Bible calls the blessed or happy, and the cursed or judged. Listen again with that context of the quest of happiness and where our hearts look for it as you hear these words in Psalm 1 again. Listen to verse 1. Blessed, happy is the person who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, but in the counsel of the righteous, nor stand in the path of sinners, but, but instead opens the path and welcomes sinners to come, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but sits rather in the seat of worshipers, His delight. You hear it again and again. It's all over scripture. It's the happiness language of delight. His delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. And what happens to this person? He'll be like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. Whatever he does, he prospers. But now you see, another tree, another person, another way of living. The wicked, the cursed are not so. They're like chaff, which the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Passages like this and the one that we're considering from Amos chapter 8 is all about where our hearts are finding our greatest joy. Who are we looking to to make us joyful and satisfied? That's a question for us this morning. I want you to think about that this morning. Where are you looking for happiness? That's a hard question. That's kind of a deep question. how, How am I supposed to come to an answer? Well, let me give you one suggestion. Just fill in this blank. If you were to fill in the blank that is in this sentence, it will help you to identify in this moment where you're actually looking for this kind of happiness and gladness that only Christ can give. The sentence goes like this. If only blank, my world would be right. On any given day, you might fill that blank in with all of these different answers, but be assured of this. On that day, when you fill it in, that is the source of your gladness. That's where you and I are looking. Sometimes, it's something good. It's a good gift. Like having a baby. If only I could have this baby, my life would be right. Sometimes it's something good like a, like a promotion at work. If I could only get this promotion, if I could only have that, that new device, my life would be right. Sometimes it's about more serious things. If only the, the politics of my country would work out like blank, all would be right. I could be happy. If only the pandemic restrictions would come to an end, all would be right. It answers for us in part where we are looking for the ultimate gladness of our lives. And it's an important question. It's an important question because if you see anything from this text this morning, see this. It's an important question to God. God asks that question of me. He asks that question of you. And he wants us to be pursuing our ultimate happiness in him. That's the joy of Christ. As we come to the, the Lord's table, that's the joy of Christ. That's what we're celebrating. What are we celebrating when we, when we t- drink the fruit of the vine and we, we take the bread. We are celebrating the joy of Christ that, that only he can satisfy Our hearts. And he does it in a magnificent way, does he not? He does it like no one else can. He satisfies our hearts even when the womb is empty. He satisfies our hearts even when we are overlooked at work. He satisfies our hearts even when we don't have what we ultimately want he satisfies our hearts when the wicked rule and when sickness and illness persist, he satisfies our hearts. He does that through the gospel. That's why we say so often we want to make the gospel paramount. We want it to be at the forefront of our minds and hearts in every way because Christ has given us life Christ gives us gladness and happiness in him. But he also gives us the opposite, the reverse of the third loss that we're seeing this morning before we take the Lord's Supper together. That is the loss of revelation. The beauty of the gospel, the beauty of Christ's faithfulness to you and me is that no matter how we continue to fail, no matter how often our hearts are pulled away to other things, his heart stays true. And his heart stays true by doing what? By continually preaching to you the good news of what he's done for you. (laughs) Continuing to bring you the steady diet of this perfect and finished revelation of his work. We see that last for just a few moments. We see in these last verses, 11 to 14, the picture of a famine. It starts off with God describing a famine in the usual way. He does that in order to come down to your level and set things out in the terms that you would understand. And then he brings the clarity that this is an entirely different kind of famine. This is a worse kind of famine. This is a famine that you didn't even expect. And it's a famine of the word of God. When their sin had fully ripened and he said, no longer will I spare them. And they're approaching this time of God forsakenness. Ultimately, it is the forsaking of this revelation of his word, which is their heart. It is their hope. It's their life. Listen to this in verse 11. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I'll send a famine on the land, but not a famine of bread or a thirst for water, but rather for hearing the words of the Lord. As a result of that famine, people will stagger. They'll stagger from sea to sea, from the north, even to the east. They'll roam about to seek the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. And when you read those words, it could be that sometimes your heart is dull like mine often is, and you think, what's the big deal? Boy, a a famine of food or a famine of water sounds so much worse than just a famine of words, but that's because I don't understand. I don't understand the value of these words. I don't feel my my ultimate need all the time of these words. That's why in my daily life, I may go moments or days, or I suppose I could if unchecked weeks without really giving consideration to my Bible, to the words of God recorded for me. I fall right out of that routine. I just don't feel my need. Famine and fear, as we have learned over the last two years, propel people to do what I heard on the news is happening yet again. And that is to hoard bread, milk, water, toilet paper. Why do people do that? Maybe that's offensive. Because it's probably going to sound like, why do you do that? (laughs) Why do I do that? Why do you do that? You do that for the same reason I do that. Because you feel your need of it. You know that you want it and you're afraid of losing it. And so you go out like I do and you try to gather up this thing that your heart is set upon that you think you desperately need and you, you get as much of it as you possibly can. Why? Because you're feeling your need of it. And yet our greatest need is right in front of us. And how seldom, oh, I say this with such conviction. How seldom do I hoard the word of God? How seldom am I clearing the shelves because I can't get enough? I'll tell you why. It's because I don't feel my need of it. That's one of the dangerous things about living where we live with all of its blessings and all of its wonders and all of its freedoms, it lulls the heart to sleep because we think, what more do I want? What more could I ask for? And the shelves remain stocked with the word of God while the toilet paper is gone. Israel did not feel their need of this you see this because they sought their revelation somewhere else. On that day, the beautiful virgins and the young men will faint from thirst. Those who are the most virile, those who are the most energetic, those who are the most ambitious, those who swear by the guilt of Samaria and say, as your God lives, Dan, and as the way of Beersheba lives, they will fall and rise again and not rise again. They're looking for their revelation somewhere else. They're looking for the words of life somewhere else. I think that all of us have a need to cultivate that feeling, to cultivate a, a deeper appreciation for our need of the word of God, one that would cause us to sweep off the shelves as much as we could, to, to bring it into our hearts. How do we do that? Before we celebrate the Lord's Supper, I want to give you by way of just basic application two points that I hope all of us would focus on that will help cultivate these two priorities. Number one, if you want to feel your need of the Word of God, prioritize ministry to your own heart. That just simply means that that we need to be aware and mindful, reminding one another and reminding ourselves of what really is in our hearts. You've seen it this morning in this text and many others. You see what your heart is really like. And as we see that, we feel our need of it. And we want more of God's word to change us. But number two, the second way that you can grow this feeling of need so that you will become a word hoarder is when you prioritize ministry to other people especially the harder people. If you were to prioritize with me ministry to the people around you, as we discussed recently, the people that disagree with us even, you would find that your desire, your craving for the word of God would grow. My craving would grow because I want these words so that I can not only feed on them myself, but give them to someone else. I ask it to you this way. Who would you say is your greatest opponent? Who in your life is your greatest opponent? It might be someone you know. It might not. It might be someone somewhere else. It might be someone on TV or in books or somewhere else that you feel in conflict with. Who is your greatest opponent? Now, let me ask you this. What if you had 15 minutes with that person? What would you say? For someone, some of us, you'll think of a person that's been criticizing you. You'll think of a person that you're at odds with, maybe in your family or your sort of friend group or maybe at your workplace. Others of us might see this person as a, a politician, someone that's imposing a will upon our lives by their authority somewhere else. Some might say, the, my boss at work, if you had 15 minutes what would you talk about with that person? You might, you might spend that 15 minutes defending yourself. You might spend that 15 minutes raising your, 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 your pet policy or, or leveling your strongest critiques because you have, you have an agenda of change, which can be a very good thing. You might spend your 15 minutes setting the boss straight on how things should be around the office. I could see myself doing all of those. But here's what I need to know and I need you to remind me that has nothing to do with ministry. That's not ministry. Rather, we feel our need for the word of God. It puts us on a mission of ministry. We want to take those life-giving words in the kindness of our King and we want to sow them graciously, mercifully into the hearts and lives of other people. Can you imagine? Can you imagine if tens of thousands strong Christians in churches everywhere made that their highest ambition? I'm going to minister to the world. I'm going to take the words of life and I am going to spread them far and wide. What a difference that would make. That is the way God intends for us to live. We have to decide what will we say. What will we say? We take our cues from the Lord Jesus because he determined what he would say. What did he say? He said, I love you. He said, I forgive you. That's, those are the words of the cross. That's what he said to us. And he promised his kindness to us. We see as we have this morning that these gospel benefits have come to us by him. He did not stand for our loss of life. He gave us life as a gift. He gave us happiness. He gave us true joy and gladness in him. And he, as we've already seen, continues to give us these words of truth. He keeps them fresh and strong. We want to carry that with us this morning into our celebration of Lord's Supper right now. And we want to do that by examining our hearts. This is a prime opportunity for us to examine ourselves and think about how we can draw close to Christ. I want to invite you, if you're here with us and you're not a member of our church, but you're a Christian, I welcome you to join us in the celebration of the Lord's Supper, that we would know God's ongoing ministry of grace to us in this time, and that we would draw close to him in these important ways. So I want to welcome you to that. What I'm going to do is just pray briefly and then I'm going to ask uh, folks here at the front to begin making their way up to take the elements of the Lord's Supper back to their seats and then we'll gather our attention back around the word of God as we take that together. Well, let me pray for us before we do that. Oh, Father in heaven, we give you thanks today because you're the giver of life. Uh, you are the, you're the champion of our happiness and you are the ultimate revealer of truth and your truth has cut to the very quick of our hearts. You, your truth has gotten to the to the heart of the matter. Our ultimate need for you. We pray, God, that you would you would continue your ministry of grace to us, and that you would enable us as a result to minister to others. We want to be ambassadors for you. We want to hoard your word into our hearts, so that we can then distribute it far and wide. We pray that as we take the Lord's Supper today, we would be encouraged that you would remind us by your grace of your incredible, incredible faithfulness to us and your kindness above all else. You have been so good to us as we celebrate the Lord's Supper today. We have that on our hearts and our minds, and we have it in Jesus' name. Amen. (laughs)